Hello and welcome to the Dating Smash Podcast. My name is Rob and this is the only podcast dedicated to showing you how to create sexy connection by being goddamn authentic. Shout out to Nikolai Heidelines for creating this kick-ass intro music. You can find him on free-stock-music.com. Hello and welcome back. Uh, my name is... Oh, oh, don't already introduce myself. Um, <laughs> just recorded a new preamble for this podcast, and uh, obviously I'm not used to it yet. But let's go ahead and get rolling. Um, today's episode, we're going to be talking about whether or not drugs can make you better at dating. Can they make you more attractive? So, short answer, yes. A long answer, yes, but it really, really depends on what drugs you're talking about, where you are in the world, and uh, whether or not Orange Mussolini is your president. Uh, in the event that he is, there's a lot here that could get you arrested or thrown in jail, so I really can't advocate that you go and do drugs just to become more attractive. And I'm going to argue that in the long run, uh, there are better ways to approach this problem. You can get the same benefits as the ones that I'm going to list for you by doing other things. And I'll explain a little bit more about that as well. So right off the bat, I'm going to go ahead and rule out things like cocaine, meth, heroin, bath salts, and alcohol. going to rule them out right away. Why? Why alcohol, Rob? Everyone drinks a little bit of alcohol. It's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah person with the same voice as me and freaky intonation. Uh, the reason why I'm going to rule it out is because of this. Uh, there's an indicator of attractiveness that we're going to go ahead and call social fitness. Uh, that is, how well can this person perform in a social environment? Do they get along with other people? How effective are they at recruiting other people to their cause? Obviously, in a civilization-based society, this is an extremely attractive trait because it means that you can get stuff done. And women are on the lookout for this. Men, too. And here's the thing. Addiction is a really, really poor indicator of social fitness. If you need to be doing coke in order to function in the real world, most people don't really find that very attractive. Of course, you will find a few outliers who do, but I'm going to argue for the sake of this podcast uh, that it's not really worth it. Any of these drugs are going to be a waste of time because they impair your ability to function normally even if they gave you godlike dating power, still couldn't really recommend it. In the long run, it costs you too much. Should also add that none of this is medical advice. Um, I'm assuming that if you're listening at this point, it's for your entertainment. You really like the sound of my voice, or you really want to hear me fuck up on this podcast, which at some point I probably will. Probably will. So yeah, this is not <laughs> this is not medical advice. This is just my opinions on stuff and things. So. That brings us back to the question of alcohol, because obviously alcohol isn't crazy addictive. It still kind of has addictive properties, but you have to be drinking it for a while before it starts causing you to behave um, like a hooligan. So <laughs> the reason why I'm going to advocate against alcohol is because dating and attraction is immensely complex and taxing on your brain. Your brain is trying to juggle many, many different things at once. For instance, if I were to call out your name from across a crowded bar, you would perk up and immediately at least notice that someone called your name, if not outright turn and look at me automatically. Why? Because your brain is 
literally keeping an ear out for this type of information. It is looking for social cues on how to behave and what to do. And there are hundreds of these buried in the background that we're just not aware of. And the minute that we start taking alcohol, it's also shutting down parts of our brain. That is how it works. So with alcohol, coordination is usually one of the first things to go. Guys, this is one of the reasons why peeing into your urinal suddenly becomes much, much more challenging after a couple of beers. It also starts to impair your ability to speak. Speech generation, language processing, um, it's the reason why people get slurred speech if they've had more than a few drinks. And then when you start to go to more excess, then memory goes, which is why you experience blackouts, you lose entire nights. And then if you continue to push it while you're blackout drunk, you forget how many drinks you've been drinking, for instance, then you start to get into more dangerous territory because the alcohol is not stopping. It's still literally shutting down parts of your brain. And that includes the areas of your brain that are responsible for things like breathing and your heartbeat, which is how people die from alcohol. So even though most people don't drink to that point, having your brain shut down lowers your bandwidth and arguably severely handicaps you. If you need to have a social drink to get the nerves out of the way, no blame here, there's nothing wrong with that, but I am gonna argue against it. it doesn't serve you in the long run. And to make another point on that, I will also point out that it's a bit of escapism. And again, nothing wrong with escapism or drinking. I don't want you to feel bad about any of these decisions. These are just things that happen. But it is not your most authentic self. A lot of people will argue that if you have a couple of drinks, that releases your inhibitions, and then you're the person that you were meant to be on the inside. And I say that's a bunch of bullshit. The reason for this is that when you take drugs, any kind of mind-altering substance, including alcohol, it causes your brain to release different neurotransmitters that it wouldn't normally be releasing day to day. I mean, is there a normal season of your life where you, without drugs, start behaving in a way where your inhibitions are gone, your coordination starts to suck, and you really, really want to hit at girls, so you go and do that? Probably not. That's not a natural state. That's not something that you would do by yourself. So therefore, it is not genuine. It's not reflective of who you are. In fact, you're trying to trigger, and I'm guilty of this too, I was trying to trigger a state that I didn't have access to. This is the fun, exciting, social version of me. Maybe people will like that. That kind of brings up the question, like, was I expecting then to be drunk for my entire relationship? <laughs> like, what happens when the booze is gone? How do I function? How do I still maintain that connection? And the answer is, of course, I can't do that. It's not a thing. I mean, I suppose it's probably technically, it could be a thing if you got like an IV drip of like vodka just straight up into your bloodstream. But, you know, that takes a toll on people. So, can't recommend that. So with that long rant out of the way, one of the first promising drugs that I want to talk about is cannabis. Because one of the benefits there is literally helping to quell the feelings of social anxiety. Right? That is one of the side effects. And it does serve its purposes. Cannabis has been shown to be medicinally beneficial to certain individuals. Whether that is for dealing with anxiety or depression, or for helping people that are coping with the effects of cancer treatment. Now... There is one problem with cannabis, though. So what most people know already is that weed works 
through the ingredient, well, I guess your ingredient is the wrong term for this, but the chemical compound THC, pretty well advertised, people know what it does. Um, what people don't realize, or what most people don't realize, including me, I had to Google this one, uh, is that it mimics a brain chemical called anandamide. Now, anandamide has an important function in the brain. It influences things like memory formation, concentration, coordination, and time perception, which kind of puts it in the same boat as alcohol, right? So even if it is quelling social anxiety, which is super useful if you want to be talking to someone that you think is attractive. Now, that's intimidating, right? That can be a scary process for guys and for girls. But not being able to remember things, uh, being unable to concentrate, having poor motor function, and having time dilation and contraction all fight against that goal. Anything that gets in the way of your ability to feel, to adapt, and remember makes you less attractive to the other person in the long run, and is, of course, less authentic. There's nothing wrong with Chief in the Reef, uh, particularly if you're in California or Colorado or Amsterdam. Uh, but for a lot of people, this is more of a handicap than it is a performance booster. So what about nootropics? And nootropics, if you haven't heard of them yet, are something that a lot of professionals have begun to use, including lawyers. I would put it almost in the same category as Adderall. It's supposed to be like the limitless drug, right? Like when you take it, your brain function is supposed to go through the roof. You can make better decisions, more informed decisions. You have all this energy, oh, so much ability to concentrate. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of still there. You, you do, when I was on nootropics, I felt smarter. I felt quick-witted. Uh, there was about a two-week period in my life where I would do them, and then I would do my work, and they're not illegal anywhere. Um, they're actually, I think they fall into the category of supplements right now. Um, so I thought that I'd found the secret to like becoming like what's-his-face and limitless, and I was so stoked. And then <laughs> I would stop and review my work, and I would find that I was just more enthusiastic about it, right? Like my rate of mistakes had probably even gone up because I like stopped really doubting myself and I just started doing things. So yeah, after reviewing that performance, I gotta say, um, it got me there faster, but at the same time, I wouldn't recommend it. It felt to me um, a lot like how Adderall feels to me, where there's kind of like a borderline level of anxiety-inducing energy. And yeah, you can concentrate on things for longer. Yeah, you can focus on them. But if it doesn't improve the quality, and there's also a feeling of like nervousness like pulsing in the background, can't argue that it's going to help your dating life. It had potential from that description. It, it sounded amazing. Uh, but... Mm, not really. Didn't really feel it. Some people might argue against that, and yeah, that's also totally fine. I think nootropics and people's experiences with substances like that are pretty, you know, arbitrary. It's pretty dependent on that person. So you may find that this is a beneficial thing for you. But for me, didn't really see the benefit. Now, one of the last two things that we're going to talk about is MDMA. And this, I believe, is a Schedule 1 drug, which means it's extremely restricted. Like, only researchers can get access to this. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's entered into testing for treating things like PTSD in a clinical setting. 
Now, why am I talking about PTSD when what we're covering is dating? Am I trying to draw some kind of reference to a dating being like war? It's horrifying. No, not really. I mean, I guess it could be for some people. For Yeah. Uh, but PTSD and anxiety kind of share similar patterns when it comes to your brain. In a very grossly oversimplified way, PTSD is like having your brain on high alert at all times because it's been trained to believe that every single day is a life or death struggle. Um, Not a fun place to be. Uh, In fact, what happens in PTSD is that the amygdala gets super, super activated. And that's a part of your brain that is responsible for processing stuff like fear, mostly fear. It's known as the fear center of the brain. And what's remarkable about MDMA is that within the therapeutic setting, that is when it's used in combination with a therapist who is running you through a regimen, it's shown to be extremely effective at treating things like PTSD, which we kind of recognize as being resistant to standard treatment options like just counseling, just therapy, or the wide swath of other pharmaceuticals, right? MDMA actually works really, really well. I think it's got a success rate of something like 76%. And the reason why it works, and this is really important, is that it increases oxytocin levels, it decreases amygdala activity, and it increases norepinephrine and cortisol release. So, in plain English, uh, oxytocin is the chemical that people's bodies release uh, after sex, when they're being touched. Um, It's released after a mother gives birth to a child. It's what creates that strong mother-child connection, right? So oxytocin is very much like the love drug. It helps us bond with other people. And it helps tell our bodies that things are going okay. Combine that with decreased amygdala activity. And that means that the fear response is really, really subdued. Uh, It's kind of telling the body that, again, things are relaxed. um, You know, nothing really to worry about. Then, the final component, which seems kind of counterintuitive at first, is increased norepinephrine and cortisol. Norepinephrine is another word for adrenaline. So, what this is doing is essentially retraining the brain. It's saying that, well, cortisol is a stress chemical. Let me say that too. So, cortisol and norepinephrine are present. That means that the environment is kind of stressful. But, at the same time, I don't feel any fear. Decreased amygdala activity. And instead, I feel connection and love, right? Thereby, yeah, letting your brain readapt, getting over that fear. Now, this is not legal in the United States. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about it, uh, unless you're getting into the clinical trials, don't really recommend doing it because that stuff can land you in jail. So what is available to you? In terms of new and upcoming treatments for mental illness or related things like anxiety and fear, Forbes has recently pointed to magic mushrooms, which is, <laughs> which I think most people never really expected, unless you've done magic mushrooms, in which case it makes perfect fucking sense. The reason why magic mushrooms work is because of a chemical, and I always get the pronunciation on this one wrong, it's uh, psilocybin. And... This has been used to treat depression and also PTSD and anxiety, but let's focus on depression. The reason why I want to focus on depression is because it is within the anxiety family of mental illness, meaning that the root, like neural cause of depression is very, very similar. So psilocybin has been described as uh, hitting the 
once you take it, of course, once you're on a dose of it, uh, it's been described as hitting a reset button on your brain. And that's especially important for people who have been trained up to have an extremely exaggerated fear response. That is, they've been over and over again subjected to a situation where uh, their bodies are keyed up and then uh, it feels like they're in danger and then they really don't get what they want. Which parallels quite nicely with the dating situation, right? You see a sexy stranger, you go, you talk to them, uh, you're, you're afraid that you're going to get rejected, and then you get rejected. And then your body and your brain are like, hey, that fear response was pretty justified, that felt dangerous. You know, the next time this happens, let's jack up the fear response a little bit more just so that we survive. We survived this time, let's keep doing it, but more. So over time... For a lot of people, that can feel like an insurmountable obstacle, which is the reason why magic mushrooms would actually be kind of an effective treatment. So on psilocybin, uh, patients' amygdalas showed less activity, significantly less. And if you remember from the previous example, that was the fear center of the brain. And central to our feelings of stress and anxiety. It also stabilized the activity in other brain areas and encouraged the formation of new connections, which is again critical. This is helping the brain relearn, reevaluate that fear response, creating connections that didn't exist before. So, I think the most promising part about this treatment is that it even works on patients for whom conventional treatment options have failed. So that's actually available to you if you, uh, I believe if you live in Amsterdam, I also believe that if you're in Oaxaca, Oaxaca in Mexico, um, there, that is a historically protected resource in that region. You are allowed to just pick them up off the ground in the forest or buy them from local vendors and the Fed will not crack down on you and throw you in prison. But if you're in the United States, again, can't really recommend it. It is an illicit Substance, I believe it is also Schedule 1, meaning that unless you are a researcher and you got a grant from the government, you cannot use it without like serious ramifications. So again, seriously, don't do it. Now, why then <laughs> did I recommend, I guess at least two drugs that are super illegal to you? Why did they, why did they even come up? If, if, if we're going to do like a list of things that might potentially help your dating, but none of them are accessible to you, why bring them up? I think, I think the value behind this is understanding why those drugs are, would be effective for improving your dating life. How, how can we take the effects that we find in those drugs and replicate them in our own lives? I think it's important then to start at the common denominator, which is decreased amygdala activation. That is getting rid of the sense of fear, dread, anxiety, and starting to function in a way that's more confident, more self-assured. I think it's also equally important to address the missing factor of human connection. If I felt more connected with people, would my dating life improve? Speaking from experience, yes, dramatically, by leaps and bounds. So the real question is then, how do I create these two effects? How do I start making new neural connections? How do I reset my brain so that these things don't bother me anymore? And the answer? The answer is self-work. Understand who you are. 
It means getting behind your fears. Why do those fears exist? Where did they come from? What is irrational about those fears and how do I move past them? It means understanding why we haven't been getting as much connection in our interactions as we would have liked. For a lot of people, and a lot of, okay, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, a lot of you are going to fight me on this because it will feel like an attack. It'll feel like you're being made wrong. And I, I can say that with confidence because I felt this way too. But the question really becomes, what have I done to discourage connection in my life? What activities, what body language, what tonality, what kind of mentalities do I have right now that stop me from feeling like a connected person? Why do I feel alone? Getting to the bottom of that isn't easy. Sometimes it can feel like you're stuck in a mental maze. Because the brain can continue to think about thoughts and then think about thinking about thinking about thoughts. So in a lot of cases, it's really helpful to have an outside perspective. Now, whether or not you're bringing on a professional coach or just talking with a friend about it, that's useful too. You might not be able to get to the bottom of it immediately, but that doesn't stop it from being valuable. The more time you can spend on learning more about you, the more benefits you're going to rake in over the years. One of the things that I've noticed is that the stuff that I judge about me, right, like is stuff that I judge in other people and that shows up in my interactions, whether or not I want them to. For instance, when I see a dude uh, that is shirtless, I immediately think that he's just doing it to show off. Like, this, look at this fucking douchebag. And do you think maybe <laughs> that might have gotten in the way of my ability to make friends with that person? Because they're probably not a douche. You know, that person worked out. He put in the time and effort to get ripped. And maybe that was my reason back in college for going around shirtless because I wanted more attention, because I wanted people to focus on the nice six or eight pack that I had. But it might not be his. And, you know, hearing me describe that, that might seem really basic. But I can guarantee you that there are other thoughts like this that are floating around in your head all the time. Dozens, if not hundreds of them. And some of these thoughts will fight against your ability to connect with another human being. That's just going to be how it is because it will make you seem judgmental. It will make you seem reactionary or intolerant. And until these things are addressed, that connection becomes very, very difficult. It just shows up in the way that we act. So that's it. That is the secret. Be willing to work on yourself. Be willing to understand who you are. And then get underneath the stuff that you really don't want in your life. And that is all the time that we have for today. My name is Rob, and this has been another episode of Dating Smash. <laughs>